again, everybody. Stuart Gandalf. Today, I'm going to be interviewing my friend Rob Klein, who is CEO of Klein and & Partners. And we're going to be talking about a really important topic. And this came up in conversation today because we're talking actually about a real-life client that's considering a name change. And this is a big deal because we're talking about changing everything in the hospital system. And, of course, there are medical centers, there are hospitals, there are medical systems. Everything is changing today. And this is not a decision to be taken lightly, obviously. Because if you choose this wrong, a lot of bad things can happen very fast. And so while most people know of me and think of me as a creative person, the reality is that I was trained as an engineer before I got into this whole marketing idea. And when I got into marketing, I still believe and really respect data. And in fact, we just got back from the Google campus. One of the things we loved from that whole meeting was, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. So I think that's a prophetic comment that we're going to lead today. And so Rob's smiling over here. But really, that's what, I'm, that's what we're about over here with our company. So uh, Rob, what, what I want to talk to today, imagine our audience is somebody who is, because we have lots of different people. We have doctors, we have hospitals, we have corporations. But for today's meeting, we're going to be talking about primarily people that already have a brand, they're considering making a change. Maybe the world has changed on them. Maybe they have acquired a new system. Maybe they're concerned they're no longer the uh, representing who they want to be, but they're considering changing their name or they're considering rebranding, even with the same name. That's a big, scary dis- discussion, right? That's a big, scary decision. So I want to talk to you about data, and I'm going to turn the mic over to you and just you're on. Stuart, thanks so much for having me on your podcast again. I really appreciate it. Enjoy these conversations that we have. And you're right. It is a very, very important, uh, potentially lifelong uh, decision. Think about when you have a child. You give that child a name that they're going to carry with them the rest of their life. If it's a bad name, as I've known a few family members and friends, when the child becomes an adult, they change their name. And that has big implications. So let's kind of back up from what's getting someone to the point where they want to have a name change. Something precipitates that that decision. So let's back up and talk about what makes a strong brand. There's there's three components of a brand strength. There's the, the brand promise, there's the brand experience, and the brand architecture. All three of those, think of it as a three-legged stool. They all three have to be in sync. You A strong brand promise creates interest in your brand from consumers. The strong experience delivers on the promise and the expectations that it created. The architecture, which includes name and how you are organized, it's kind of the the rules of engagement. How well do all the brand family members play in the sandbox, let's say. So if you're a system and your brand promise is we are, and I'll just make something up for sake of argument, you know, we are we are a well-coordinated uh, delivery system, yet you act like individual hospitals and you're siloed, your experience will fail the brand promise and the expectations that it's created. How that also impacts the naming. If you want to be a branded house, for example, so you're a system, you're, you're system A, and then you have the hospital names under it or the medical uh, names or any ancillary services, that implies that it's a, a master-branded organization as opposed to Hospital A, a member of System A, which implies more of a, uh, an endorser brand or a subservient master brand, if you will. So naming is what's called a brand identity element of the brand architecture. It's a way you express. It's a visual or a verbal cue 
of your brand. It tells people who you are. And if you think of a name, the sole purpose of a name, and, and whether it's the, the word part of the name or the, the icon or the bug part, the logo, the visual part, whether it's Nike, Swoosh, things like that. But we're talking about the actual name that you give. The name, the purpose of the name is to just be a triggering stimuli. So when someone sees that brand name, it triggers the thoughts, the images, the emotions, and the behaviors that you want to trigger in that person's mind. You look at Nike, it is such, uh, it is such a, uh, an iconic brand, they don't even, in their commercials, they don't even use the name anymore. They just show the, the swoosh. So they're almost like Prince. You know, they're the brand formerly known as Nike. It, it's so iconic. They just, they show the swoosh, and everybody says, oh, that's Nike. They, that, that's how they have become so iconic in our mind. The golden arches for McDonald's, same thing. But in healthcare, for the most part, we need to have our names to trigger, oh, this is brand X. This is what I feel about it. This is where I know it's located. This is the experience that I will have. I like this brand. And so changing your name has a lot of unintended consequences. Typically, when there's a name change, uh, it can have good reasons and bad reasons. If you look at, uh, for example, let's go way back in the 90s when Methodist and IU Riley merged. The two CEOs could not agree on which came first, Methodist or IU. Both brands thought their brand was deserved to be in the first slot. So what they decided to do is, since we can't agree, let's create an empty vessel. So they came up with Clarion Health. And it failed miserably. And it, it went on for 15, 20 years. Clarion, turns out, it was a mythical um, trumpet or horn. If you look at the icon or the logo, it, it kind of looks like a horn. But it was so ethereal, it just blew over everybody's head. So they, they took two iconic brands, Methodist and IU Riley, which Riley's the children's. And they took two brands with, with you know, 100-plus years of brand equity and created an empty vessel because they couldn't agree and they didn't do their research to determine which name should have gone first. And in the whole scheme of things, it really would have been trivial in consumers' minds. But their egos wouldn't let them do that. So now you have Clarion, which never went anywhere. Now, if you look a few years ago, they rebranded again, and now it's IU Health. So they would have been better off going with IU Health 20 years ago and had a nice long run. Now, they have what I call the just kidding strategy, where they had to unwind the Clarion name. And think of the expense across all their hospitals that they have in Indiana. Tens and tens of millions of dollars it cost them to unwind the Clarion name to create the IU Health, when if they would have done their due diligence and their research, they probably would have come to that conclusion back in the, probably the 90s when that, when that first started. Wow, what a disaster. I mean, really. Tell me what the research would be, because that's, that's actually the point of today's call, is our research that we're having. How can we avoid just a disaster? Because everybody has a creative opinion. Clarion was probably a really cool idea that somebody sold everybody else on the room about. But how do we avoid these things? How would you, if let's say these executives came to you today, what would be your process to avoid such a debacle? Changing a name is very expensive. I always tell clients that naming and the naming architecture is a chess match. You have to think several moves out. Too many times we are playing checkers. We don't do brand architecture well. A lot of clients don't even have 
a brand architecture and naming architecture guidelines. So when mergers and acquisitions happen, which, as we know, M&A activity is, is through the roof. Everybody is either buying, being bought, merging, dating, something. Everybody is in a state of at least dating or looking. So that means there are brands coming together that were once competitors are now going to be brand family members. And so there is some natural animosity of, oh, are we going to be swallowed up by brand X or vice versa? And so naming is a natural first discussion that happens. Oh, it's almost like in marriage. Are you going to take my last name if it's male to female? Or are you going to hyphenate? Or are you going to keep your maiden name, perhaps? So there's that that discussion that happens back and forth. And changing a name is very difficult in healthcare. As I said, it's very costly. Um, but consumers actually are horrible at telling us what is a good name, especially if it's em- an empty vessel, or even worse, if it's a made-up name, uh, you know, not a name in the English language. That's very hard for them. When I'm doing naming research like that, I'm actually focusing more on how a name sounds and how they use it in a sentence rather than what the name means. If it's a made-up name that is maybe a prefix and a suffix put together, something like that, that has no meaning, then it's a focus of how does the name sound when I'm talking? Do I, does it make me lisp or slur? Is it easy to remember or is it a long name? Is it a, is it a silly sounding name? Can it be misinterpreted and maybe one letter switched and it makes a bad name? How many times when you're naming your child do you use the, you look at the initials that you've created and you want to make sure it doesn't spell a bad three letter word? And we've seen that happen. So we have to think it out. So having a brand architecture strategy in place, that is something that consumers don't understand, brand architecture. It's something that is a strategy that the organization must put in place. So, for example, from a brand architecture standpoint, if I am a branded house, meaning it is health system A. Like a branded house would be General Electric, for example. It's GE light bulbs, GE jet engines, GE appliances. All the brand equity is in the master brand, and then the products are just the descriptor of what the it is. So that's a true master branded or a branded house. A house of brands at the other extreme is like a Procter & Gamble. People think it's the Tide Company or the Crest Company. All the equity is in their products. The P&G, it's a solid corporate name, but it's not a consumer-facing brand name. It's more of an internal system, if you will. So deciding on your brand architecture, that will immediately dictate what some of your naming options might be, at least the naming conventions. So the first question I would ask a client that was looking at changing a name is what is precipitating that name change. Is there a merger going on? Is there an acquisition going on? Do you have some brand baggage that is so bad that a name changes? You have to get, you're running away from the brand baggage that you need to change the name. Too often, name changes happen in a more flippant way. It's more, oh, we just, we just want to change our name not recognizing the unintended consequences when there's no strategy behind a name change, it's going to be disastrous. I can tell you the one problem that we really face with name changes is there's something, a term I coined years ago called memory telescoping. And what that means is people have generational memories of hospitals, especially if it's a bad experience. When I'm doing focus groups and someone tells me about a bad experience, I immediately ask, how long ago did that happen? I recently in a focus group had a gentleman say, you know, 
that actually happened 20 years ago. I know all the people are gone, and it's a better hospital today, so maybe I'll give them another chance. But he talked about that experience from 20 years ago like it was yesterday. It had, he had the same visceral response. That's what memory telescoping is. We're the only industry that has it to such a degree. And so what also that creates is people that remember a hospital name from 20 years ago, you go changing the name on them, they're still going to call it what they're comfortable with. So actually, when I'm doing market research, I have to put all of the old names in the pre-code list. So when someone calls it Hospital A, even though it's Hospital B now, I'm able to show the client, you still have 20, 30, 40% of your community calling your hospital a name it hasn't been in 20 years. And you want to go change it again? So again, having data puts in perspective where the name is, and maybe you don't want to make that change. Unless there's a clear business reason for changing that name, it's, you have a brand architecture that's been agreed upon, so names have to be changed maybe structurally. You're not changing the name, but you're changing how it appears in the brand hierarchy. That's a business decision that consumers don't need to come in on. If you're changing the name because two entities have merged and now you are creating, say, two hospitals get together and they're forming a system and you want a system to have that empty vessel name and keep the hospital names within it. That's legitimate business reason. A lot of smaller community hospitals are getting together and they're forming systems so that they can make themselves appear bigger and harder to be acquired. And so that's an interesting strategy that's going on. So you're seeing a lot of systems developing that really, they're, they're barely systems, but they're, they're trying to make themselves be bigger than maybe they really are to put themselves in a better driver's seat when M&A comes knocking at, uh, at their door. One of the things we hear a lot about is where you have several hospitals with completely different brand names, different brand histories, different community names. How do you make the decision? Because you could just have a holding company that keeps the names the way they were. Uh, each individual hospital maintains its uh, old identity. And so it doesn't really matter that they, in other words, the hospital still keeps the same name. Should they do that or should they create a new name? How do you determine that? Well, then if you, if you have the, the legal name and the holding company and the, the hospitals keep their own name, now you have more of what is called the, the house of brands. So each hospital retains its unique identity. Exactly. But what I'm asking is, how do you choose to do that? How would you, that, that's a better idea than renaming the whole thing. How do you, what's the process to make a decision? Because that's an option, right? We could keep, everybody has their own names, or do we want to have a brand new name? What kinds of factors when you're coaching or consulting with CEOs, how do we make these decisions to make the right decision? There's where data and research comes in. To understand from consumers, I, I've done a lot of system uh, research. In fact, I go back to the, the mid-90s when, when health systems first came to Vogue, and we, we had round one of systemization in the mid-90s, and I did, did a lot of research to understand what expectations were. And back then, the, the industry's idea of a health system was, let's just change the name and do signage and advertising, and we're done, whereas consumers wanted legitimate value-add. And so the first thing you want to understand, if these organizations are getting together and they're considering a name change versus making it more a house of brands where each hospital retains its own identity, is to ask consumers. If, hypothetically, these organizations came together and became one and presented themselves in this way, what are your expectations for an experience? What would you expect as a patient walking in any one of these doors? What do you expect to be different? How, how would you want to benefit? And then what would your concerns be? What do you think might not go well? 
And then just those two simple questions, if you ask nothing more than that, you would understand what the expectations of this coming together would be. And it might be, for example, they'd say, well, once I go into Hospital A and I explain my situation, if they ship me over to Hospital B for care, I expect Hospital B to be expecting me, to know who I am, and I don't have to repeat myself. That's what I would expect if they want to be a master brand or a branded house where they, they change their name and they're now one. I would expect a single billing system so that I get one bill regardless of where I enter into the system. Essentially, I would expect the left hand would know what the right hand's doing. So that's just an, an example of the one side. If if you want to retain and be independent, then there's no there's no discernible value add to the consumer. So then there's there's no story there. In fact, there's very few clients that I can think of that are remaining a house of brands. That uh, you know, e- even your national systems, whether it's the the uh, the tenants, the um, any of the Catholic systems like Ascension or Trinity, um, uh, you know, Dignity Health, they are all becoming branded houses. So they're changing. They are putting the corporate name in front of the local brand names now. And they are creating a national presence in their marketing and advertising and in the way they are presenting and delivering care at the local level. So you're seeing a major shift in the national brands that were a house of brands, where the corporate name, whether again, whether it's a Trinity or Ascension, just to take those two as an example, they were taking, they were a, they were like Procter & Gamble. They were a good system internally, but they let the stars be the local brands, the local hospitals. Now, those types of brands and others like them are saying, let's bring the master brand out forefront and let's create a value proposition that says, hey, we are all a big national network. I've done a lot of research with that for other clients thinking of doing that. The expectations that that creates are very difficult for many of them to actually do. Consumers are saying, oh, so anywhere I travel in the country, any one of your hospitals can treat me. I'm like a member of any of your any of your hospitals. It's like whatever McDonald's I go to, it's the same experience. It's going to be a single bill. When I go to Dr. A in my market, if he or she doesn't have the answer, they can call one of their colleagues at any one of your other 150 hospitals and get an answer for me. Those are just two expectations. I know I had one client that said, well, we can't do either of that. And I said, so then you are creating a name and a brand architecture naming structure that is creating an expectation that you can't deliver on. That's a recipe for failure. So that's where naming is not just, oh, what's in a name? Everything is in a name because it's going to convey what you do and it's going to create expectations. That's what names do. They create expectations. And if you can't deliver on those, you're going to fail. I know of hospitals that can't do, uh, create common systems within their departments of just one hospital, <laughs> not within multiple hospitals. I'm saying the ER versus the uh, OB/GYN department or whatever, the uh, cardiothoracic surgery. They have different systems entirely. So that imagine multiplying that times multiple hospitals across a big region. That's a big big deal. I guess the next question. This was a fun one for me. The whole idea. This is actually now old, but still a lot of people don't know this. The whole idea of hospital versus medical center. And there was a rage a few years ago to change everybody to medical center, but it turned out when they finally checked, oops, hospital has more credibility. I guess at this point for the question, share some examples with or without naming specific names, but of some things to avoid, things that we just know are bad ideas. 
I'll take my politically correct hat off. Uh, <laughs> some of the, uh, maybe to me at least, obvious, we can always edit out. Yeah, thanks. Um, when I see clients where they say hospital medical center, that's redundant. I, I do, that has always baffled me why they put, it's almost like they're throwing everything in to be a catch-all. When we try to get cutesy with calling urgent care something fancy, the, the fancier you try to get on the descriptor name, you're taking away the orientation or the, the person's mind thinking about the main brand. So to keep the descriptor simple. Don't get cutesy with urgent care. If you want to call it immediate care or urgent care, but we have clients that use other different names or they'll try to brand it so it's their own urgent care. And then I'll say, okay, you have your corporate we have your brand equity in your brand name here in this master brand. Now you have created a new brand name within the urgent care that you want consumer, consumers to care about. You've now demanded they care and think and remember two different names. They're only going to remember one. They're only going to remember one. You know, I, here's the example I use. My full name is Robert Francis Klein. That's my surname. Nobody calls me that. My name's Rob. Brands take on a familial name. McDonald's is Mickey D's. Kentucky Fried Chicken is KFC. When a brand has a strong following and someone loves a brand, they give it a nickname. They give it, they give it that familial name, that short name. We love short names. We don't call things by their full name. We, in healthcare, we love to make really long names. It's unbelievable. We do a complete full name with a first name, a middle name, and a last name, and then we ask consumers to care about all three of those names, and they're not going to. They're going to pick the one name that they relate to. And so we complicate things by saying we've just, it's almost, I call it logo soup. We just, let's just throw everything in. It's like, you know, in advertising, if there's white space in a print ad, they want to put some copy there or a picture when we know less is more. But to the untrained eye, more is more. And that's rarely the case. So with naming, you want the name to be short and sweet, and you only want to have one name, if it's a compound or multiple words, you only want one name to be where the brand equity rests that people care about. The other name should be just a descriptor. I'm telling all my clients, you've got to move to a, a, a master brand or a branded house orientation, where the equity is the system name, and then you have the descriptor. Many of them have hospitals that have a 100-year legacy, so what they're doing is a dual kind of strategy where it's, it's the system name and then the hospital name. Maybe it's next to each other or under it, and then all the ancillary services are the master. So it's, it's health system A, medical group, home care, hospice, et, you know, et cetera. But the hospitals are keeping their name for a while until people get used to that system name. Some of them are moving to campus. You know, it's health system instead of hospital, it's health system. And if, say the hospital, a lot of times it has the name of the city. It might be health system, city, campus, whatever the name is. So they're converting that way. They're keeping some of the legacy equity, but they're, they're, they're moving it up to the system name. But that takes a commitment, and it, and it takes time to, to build the equity in that. But that, you want the equity in only one name. If you, I've got clients that have... Uh, the the national brand system name, then they have a local system name, then they have the hospital name. And I ask them, which of those, if you can only have one of those brands that people care about and connect with, which one do you want them to care about? Because they're going to forget the other two, and they can't answer that. That's the challenge we really face in naming. We're kindred spirits here, Rob, because we see this all the time. 
The medical group wants their brand. The individual service line wants their brand. The hospital wants their brand. The the larger institution wants their brand. And it's insane. It's lucky to get one brand and be known, not four or five for a specific problem. So this is really common. So I guess I want to, as we start to wrap up here, we've talked about what not to do. Uh, what I'm really intrigued about and, and uh, about your process, Rob, is data. As I mentioned at the beginning of the call here, or the uh, interview, is how can we create data? So without going to all of your secret sauce here, but maybe give us a sense of focus groups, telephone surveys, internet surveys, how if somebody were to, and I hope they do, call you from this uh, podcast and say, hey, Rob, we want to work with you, what's kind of your process without all the details, but just some basic ideas of things that you would recommend? So a couple of things. Uh, the, the process I developed about 15 years ago, um, I call it brand print. Uh, I wanted to be an architect when I was younger, so it's kind of like a blueprint for building a house. You have to have a blueprint for building a brand. And, and so it has four elements. Where are we now? Where do we want to go? How do we get there? And are we on track? And so each phase of the, to answer those questions is a process of data collection and data assimilation. Probably the most important element of this process is you develop and convene a brand team. Because I'll tell you, if you do all of this work and it resides just with marketing, it will fail. Because what will happen is the ops and, and everybody in other departments and other groups will say, oh, that's just something marketing's doing. It's just going to be a tagline. And that is a death nail for this. Because brand management is a strategy that is organization-wide. It's a, it's a way of life. And it's only as strong as the person who believes in it the least. I call it the weakest link in the chain theory. And your, your organization, every staff member, has to, has to hear it, they have to believe it, and they have to live it. You need to create 100% brand ambassadors, or all you have done is create a new ad or a new tagline or a new color scheme or a, a new icon or bug or something like that. And that, that's, that is destiny to, to fail. So having the CEO sanction and say, yes, I support this brand team, you, it's a mixture. It's cross-functional. So you need some from HR. HR is like, why am I involved with brand? This is just marketing and advertising. No, it's not. Because a strong brand strategy involves hiring. I read an article from the CEO of Advocate uh, maybe a year or so ago, and he said, we used to hire people for their, their clinical competency, and we hoped for bedside manner. Now we expect clinical competency, and we hire for bedside manner. That is a significant change in philosophy. But think about it. If you have a new brand promise... And let's just say you want to be the friendly and caring, warm and fuzzy health system. But you hire people the old way, which is you hired clinically competent people and you didn't care if they were nice and warm and fuzzy or not. You will fail in the execution of your brand promise. So if this is just an exercise with marketing, it will fail. So the first thing when I'm engaging in a project like this is to find out, is the CEO and the senior leadership, have they signed off on this? And do they agree to what the expectations of a brand management process are. Oftentimes, I'll come in and do, I have a three-hour workshop that I do. It's kind of, I call it Branding 101, and I will give that workshop to senior leadership to kind of understand what their brand IQ is and what their appetite for committing to brand is. I have some clients where they'll say, don't use the B word in front of our, our, our CEO. He or she doesn't like the word brand. Use reputation or image. They're more comfortable with that. I'm like, that is a signal that this will not work. So putting a brand team together that's cross-functional and supported by the CEO, and we'll have a brand champion that will come out of this that will be the person that's responsible for bringing the brand to life. That's the first step. If that doesn't happen, then the exercise is just that. After that, 
then we have a process of internal and external data collection. Too often times we focus on what do consumers want. We never ask staff, what are you willing to get behind? Is this something you can, you can live and bring to life? Because they'll, it'll fail if, again, it's just consumers can love it, but if the staff won't bring it to life, it will fail. So the internal and external research is absolutely key. And then between each phase of research, convening the brand team to share the knowledge and assimilate it into the team and then have the team prepare for the next phase of research. So it's a data gathering qualitative, presenting to the brand team, developing the ideas, whether it's the brand promise you're focusing on, the, uh, the naming, the architecture, whatever the emphasis of the, the project is, and then testing that quantitatively and going back and forth with the brand team until you are able to develop the final, what I call, brand platform. And that means the brand promise, the brand architecture, uh, the implications for bringing it to life, which is the brand experience. Because you have to have those reasons to believe. What does this brand promise actually look and feel and taste and smell and sound like? Rob, I love doing this with you because it's so consistent with the things that we do. You know, one of the things we talk about when we position a practice or a hospital and talk about the branding, and for us, positioning is the rational argument of why you and the brand is the larger whole concept. But one of the things we talk about is some things are or more fuzzy than others, but sometimes you get the right brand where the team or the hospital or the practice can get really behind. And my favorite recent example of that is my friends over at Cleveland Clinic because their brand is all about patient first. And when you come up with that concept, everything else is easier. So uh, we recently interviewed Paul Matson of Cleveland Clinic, and we were talking about how do they ever come up with same-day appointments? How in the world was that possible? Well, number one, it had CEO support. There's no way on the planet that would have ever happened without CEO. You can't, I can't get a same-day appointments out of a private practice with two doctors, let alone Cleveland Clinic. But the biggest thing was beyond that, beyond the CEO support, was the idea of patients first. And once you have that kind of a concept, just like you were talking about bedside manner, if, if we really want to be caring, you, got, you can't just say it. you got to be it. you got to prove it. And every interaction, and in fact, people are so skeptical today. It's like, well, I don't think you're being very caring, right? How many times would they say that? So if you say, this is our stake in the ground, this is the place we're going to be, this is who we stand for, and nobody's bought in, it's a disaster. And in different hospitals have different levels of respect for marketing, but if you don't have the stakeholders involved, if you don't have the doctors involved, if you don't have the CEO involved, if you don't have donors involved, if you don't have the employees involved, and, and everybody thinks it's just marketing fluff, you're right, it's dead on arrival. Absolutely. So the point I would like to make on behalf of Rob, I think, is data matters. Data is everything. And so while our firm is all about the creativity and all about positioning and all about doing the appropriate communication, before we get there on a bigger project, now clearly a lot of our clients, they may not have the budget to do you know, quantitative, qualitative focus groups, telephone surveys in the community, and, and all that may be out of reach. But for a hospital or a larger group, this is your reputation we're talking about. This is your business we're talking about. We're talking about you've been around for 40 years. How on earth are you going to change that on whimsy? You're going to sit around in a, in a boardroom or in a, a conference room without any context at all and make a decision that will shape the practice or the hospital for the next 40 years without any kind of evidence. That Would you, would you cut a patient like that? Would you make those kinds of decisions without any kind of rational thought? So I'm really excited that you do this. Any parting thoughts for our audience, Rob? Just to kind of feed off what you're saying, uh, when you do that, uh, just pick a name kind of as a whim. It's like just throwing a dart against a dartboard that has a bunch of stocks on it and picking a stock that way. 
once you make a naming mistake like that, to undo it and do what I call the just kidding strategy, that actually has worse ramifications than if you did nothing. So a well-thought-out strategy beforehand. Again, the, the name is not in itself a strategy. It is a, it's an executional cue or presentation of the strategy. So you can't do any naming until you've identified your strategy. Then you are just guessing. If you have proper strategy, the naming tends to be so simple. Oftentimes, if I've got a client that really has a strong brand architecture strategy worked out, the naming happens by itself. You don't even need to bring in consumers because you already have the parameters set up in your identity guidelines that say, if this happens, this is what the name has to be. If this happens, it has to be this. And so you have very few exceptions to that, and it makes naming especially if there's a merger and acquisition, you go into that merger and say, this is our brand architecture naming strategy. If we get together, your name is going to be this. There's no discussion here, period. So having a strategy and having a strong brand, it allows you to say no. When you don't have a strong brand, you go after everything. You chase your tail. You know, it's like having a boat in the water without a rudder. You can floor it and you'll get somewhere, but you may go in circles. A brand strategy is think of it as GPS for your brand. You set a track and you stay on that track. It makes it easy because you know what opportunities you go after and which opportunities you say no thank you to because they don't fit your brand. So it is so much easier to run a business when you have a strong brand strategy thought out because it takes the guesswork out of decisions. And let's face it, everybody's career is on the line. If you make a bad decision, especially with naming, that is a long-term oops that you're going to have to live with, but you may lose your job over it. And so think about your career. Do you really want to rename the baby, if you will, without having strong data to support it? I guess the last comment I'll make is, and it, sometimes you stay with the same name and you still have the same problems. We may decide to keep the same name, but a rebrand can be the same name, but a different look, a different feel, a different brand promise all these things, and it really comes down to what's the essence? What, what do we stand for, and how do we communicate things? And plus, over time, things change. So, for example, as a true story, I was talking to my daughter the other night, and I was telling her, you know, Natalie, you're 13 years old. You have to understand, Dad's a pretty good guy here, but you keep changing every six months. You're a new person. That's in a very individual sort of way. But for a hospital or hospital system, every two or three years, they're different. Things have changed. So even though they may have the same name, they're a different beast. So how do we evolve? How do we grow? How do we do these things with confidence? Because without it, you're really rudderless, as we discussed. So thank you, Rob. You were awesome, as always. This was terrific. Thanks, everybody, for listening. 